Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that takes birds seriously, but nothing else. I'm your host, John Janusik, and thanks for listening. In each episode of this podcast, we'll take a deep dive into the evolutionary history, taxonomy, and behavior of individual bird species, all while keeping the banter light, the energy bright, and the humor raunchy. Whether you're a longtime birder or just a fellow nature lover, I hope you'll find this podcast educational and enjoyable. In this episode, Nice Tits, I sit down with Tim and another friend, Little Chris, to talk about two of my favorite birds, the tufted titmouse and the black-capped chickadee. A couple chickadees were even kind enough to stop by and sing for us during the recording. Here's the show. I'm here sitting on the banks of the Sand Run Lake right now in uh, Davis, West Virginia, right next to Dolly Saws and Canaan Valley Wildlife Reserve. I'm here with uh, Tim Mastracci. Hey, hey. Good to be here. Good to have you here, man. Tim's uh, one of my longtime burden friends, and uh, we have um, little Chris. Hello. Chris, uh, so don't uh, get confused. Last two episodes, we had um, Chris Hildreth with us. This is Chris uh, Caracciolo with us. Chris, uh, introduce yourself. Uh... My name's Chris Caracciolo, also known as Little Chris. I don't know much about birds. I know they exist. I see them around flying. Um, that's a that's about my uh, knowledge of birds. All right. Well, we'll fill you in on some information and uh, you know give us your thoughts. Today, I'm excited. Uh, we're gonna call this episode "Nice Tits." We're gonna be talking about specifically tufted tit mice and black cap chickadees, but we'll talk about kind of the whole North American uh, tit family. I hope the mic's picking it up, but there's some chickadees in the background right now mm-hmm. in a tree. I was actually walking around this morning following these guys around, and they had some nut hat, white-breasted nuthatches hanging out with them, some brown creepers. Also, there was like two blue jays hanging out with them too, which is mm-hmm. kind of weird. Usually, I feel like the blue jays don't hang out with them, but we'll talk about how chickadees form a mixed flock and kind of our... Uh, uh, nuclear species of the forest. I don't know, Chris, what do, what do you want to start off with about uh, chickadees? And... Um, I'm interested in where the name tit came from. Yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and did the term for uh, breast <laughs> you come just first? <laughs> or did the name of the bird family come first? So I will hook you and up. are they related? <laughs> I will hook you up on tit as far as the bird goes i do not know the etymology of calling okay boobs tit that's fair. i can't help you with that's that fair. one i'm sorry so it's a bird podcast so i understand so, so tit is middle comes from middle english it's middle english for small also in old norse uh titlinger means uh refers to like a sparrow and then in hmm. icelandic modern icelandic actually titter uh refers to like a small bird and uh so that's where tit kind of comes from. And then the mouse in um, tit mouse, it actually has nothing to do with a mouse, like a, a little rodent mammal mouse. Um, it actually comes from the Old English mace, which just refers to a bird, uh, a kind of a, a tit bird. And then there's the Old High German mesa. Um, and so uh, 
I think originally they were called, uh, so it's kind of a redundant name, like Titmouse. You're kind of just saying small bird, small bird from the roots. Um, and I think actually it used to be called Titmoss, like M-O-S-E, Titmoss. And then around like the 16th century, just with, you know, uh, accents and vernacular, it started changing to mouse, people pronouncing it mouse. Mm. So that's where it comes from. Interesting. Okay. And so tit is just like a broad family of birds. What is, is just a way to, like, what is that? Yeah. Yeah. So basically, if you're over in like Europe, um, there's a huge family of like tits, basically, of, of birds. And um, they're all kind of in the same family. Okay. Paris is the fam- P-A-R-U-S is the family. Okay. And then when, you know, European explorers started going around, um, they pretty much lumped everything into that family Paris okay. that looked like a, a tit, a small bird. Uh-huh. Yeah, they're pretty cool in Europe. I, I had the uh, pleasure to see some of them when I was in Britain. There's like a long-tailed tit, which has like this giant tail that's twice the size of the body. Mm. And then we have tit mice over here, just nomenclature. We call them tit mice. Titmouse, you know, mm-hmm. um, I don't know the plural, titmice, titmouse, <laughs> like, but, uh, but, um, over in Europe, they'll just call them tits. They, they won't uh-huh. do the titmouse, uh, really. Uh-huh. But, um, you also hear there's a couple other, there's like the Tom tit in Australia, um, which actually isn't related to these guys. It's an Australian robin, which isn't related to the American or European robins to make things even more confusing. There's there's pendulum tits, which um, they're called that because they make these nests that are kind of like balls that hang from tree branches like a pendulum. And so you'll hear you'll hear the term tit, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're uh, in this family. However, so kind of the family tit, they all look very similar. Uh, we have a picture in front of us of a black-capped chickadee. And you'll see kind of that body shape uh, is is pretty common to uh, all these birds in this family. Kind of just some taxonomy of them, I guess. They're in the order um, Passeriformes, which is like 50% of birds. Um, it's kind of our songbirds, our perching birds. Um, you know, the birds we always see on calendars and cards and stuff. Then they're in the family Paridae. Paridae, um, they generally are, like I said, they used to be lumped into the, the family Paris. But then as like we started doing genomic analysis and everything, I bet you, so we have our 1930s birding book opened. Are, are they listed with Paris? On that, they're not. Uh, they're actually Baylophus. Oh, Baylophus. Okay, yes. here, flip the page to the chickadees. Are they still in Paris? Does it have them in Paris? Penthestus. Penthestus. Okay, I have no idea where that comes from, but anyway, <laughs> from the 1930s. Yeah, that book is. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Great. we ran into that yesterday as well with a different. Uh... Yep. So yeah, like I said, when the Europeans, you know, were going around, they pretty much were naming birds based off of what they were used to back home. So even if they weren't actually related, if they if it was a small bird, they pretty much called it a tit. Mm. But anyway, uh, almost all of the members of this family are cavity nesters, uh, meaning they'll nest like inside of trees or fence posts or something like that. Most of them, they they will use like an old woodpecker hole, or they can excavate their own nest too. Except the tit mice, they can't. Their bills aren't strong enough. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but they they only use pre-existing. But apparently, chickadees can uh, excavate their own nest. You wouldn't think from looking at them yeah. uh, that they could, you know, peck a hole or anything. So all of them kind of have uh, similar characteristics in that they uh, they're very gregarious, they're uh, very vocal. Um, you kind of use them as when you're in a forest, you hear some tits, and and like 
other birds clump around them. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that a little more. And so that's kind of the really behavior of kind of the family as a whole. And then, of course, um, they came over to America and kind of differentiated. Chris, what uh, does that answer your question at all about what a tit is? Oh, yeah, definitely. I was just intrigued because, you know, obviously that name is synonymous with other things. So <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to clarify that. <laughs> so would these birds, would you see them in Richmond? Mm-hmm. I think that might have been what was in my house. Really? That looks really? exactly <laughs> like what was flying around my house the other day. <laughs> <laughs> that you had to get out with uh, opening yeah. some windows. Yeah, we opened some doors and windows. I got a broom to just kind of like, I never touched it with the broom, but, you know, at least directed in the right location. Not but it just did not want to leave. <laughs> but we we finally got it out uh. safely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> they're not really like city birds the way like, you know, pigeons uh-huh. or uh, uh, house sparrows would be. But, I mean... They're very um, adaptable, so, I mean, you could definitely see see them around. Uh-huh. Um, I'm sure, I mean, Richmond has a good amount of trees, and yeah. the surrounding area is, is pretty forested, mm-hmm. so I could definitely yeah, see, see them Yeah, I'm pretty sure. There. I'll have to confirm, but that looks like what was flying around. Yeah. And it makes yeah. sense. And when, it was very tiny. Yeah, finding its way into a house if they're reliant on other structures right. being made. for Because we have no idea how it got in. Yeah. All of our doors and windows were closed. We both came home from work, and it was just there. So it yeah. must have found a little little hole yeah. or something that yeah. thought it was going into a tree or something. <laughs> but Well, cool. I'm glad he made it out safe. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, maybe I'll talk about kind of uh, the evolution of them, how they got over here and everything. Sounds yeah, good. so they're so, not native to the America. Well, okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, a native as in they've been here for millions of years, but yes, they did at one point invade. Okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, I mean, they're native in the sense that, you know, it's not they've like starlings or, yeah, yeah. It's not us. like they were introduced by humans. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they made it over. I mean, you know, humans came over, what, 15,000 years ago to, uh, to North America so, um, actually, um, tits settled North America twice, the common ancestors did. Um, the first one came over about 5.3 million years ago, and that was the ancestor of the titmouse. And then mm. the ancestor of the chickadee came over around 2.5 million years ago. Mm. Um, I guess when I was talking earlier about tits in, in Europe, they'll say tit, kind of over here we'll say chickadee. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm. exactly. So, okay, like the okay. black cat chickadee, you know, we, we call them a chickadee, and then we have titmouse for like, there's kind of two big groupings. There's the mm-hmm. chickadees, and then there's the titmice. Mm. Titmouse. Titmice. <laughs> <laughs> and the titmouse, <laughs> they're like bigger. They usually have a crest, um, whereas the chickadees are a little smaller. They don't have the crest. And uh, But over, if you were in Europe, they would just call them all tits. Oh. Um, yeah. But anyway, so what happened is uh, about 5.3 million years ago. So this is like the early, mid... Um, Pliocene era. I think I got my timeline open in front of you there, Chris, if you want to take a look at it. So um, during this time, uh, though, we were coming out of like a really warm area. Uh, It was like about three degrees Celsius, higher temperature. Sea levels were around 25 meters higher. But then it started kind of cooling and glaciating. And you had kind of some opening of that um, Bering Land Bridge, Mm -hmm. um, which allowed tits to make it over here. This is kind of a time of like a lot of um, invasion of uh, North America. Um, 
North America is like a pretty crazy time right now. It, it was kind of really tropical when it was warm like that. And then as like it started to cool, um, it started to form kind of more almost like savannas. Um, almost, and like there were more desert areas forming kind of like scrub oak brush. Uh, you also had the um, Isthmus of Panama opening up about 3.5 million years ago. So North America and South America had previously been closed off, but as sea levels dropped, Gradually, it started with islands, and then it started with the whole entire, uh, you know, Central America opening up, and that allowed species from South America to come up. Mm-hmm. It allowed uh, North American species to also go down, and it's a pretty crazy time. So there's a lot of animals like starting to interact at this time. When the tits were first um, coming over, um, there were mastodons, there were rhinos, three-toed horses. Um, there was also this bird um, called Titanus which was an eight-foot-tall, 300-pound, yeah, terrestrial bird. <laughs> a bird? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like the eagles from Lord of the Rings. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it didn't fly. It was oh, on okay. the ground. Yeah, yeah. Still, that's yeah. scary. Yeah. 300-pound <laughs> <laughs> so bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> eight-feet tall. Of course, you had, you know, the giant ground sloths and those kind of, uh, those kind of animals, too. But anyway, you know, when they came over here, it was kind of ripe for them. Obviously, there was, I mean, the way that they were able to spread and uh, diversify, obviously, there were a lot of niches they were able to to fill. Um, so, like I said, the first one to come over was uh, the ancestor of the titmouse. Looking at the, uh, you know, related, um, closely related European species, there's uh, the crested uh, titmouse. And uh, that's kind of one of the most closely related um, over in Europe. So it was probably a common ancestor of those two that first came over. And as far as kind of what happened, so that common ancestor came over. They kind of occupied, uh, it's called uh, Madro Tertiary Flora. It's almost, if, if you go to like, um, I think probably Southern California uh, represents it today. It's kind of like a semi-arid live oak and conifer woodlands with plains and grasslands. Um, that's kind of what, when they were coming over, what the landscape was like. So uh, that common ancestor came over, and then they started to split off into different species. First speciation occurred with the um, uh, bridled titmouse. And uh, the bridled titmouse is uh, out, out west, you'll see. It has like a very distinct, um, yeah, black um, coloration Ooh. to it. Mm-hmm. And kind of the tufted titmouse and the oak titmouse separated from that, and they lost that black face pattern. Um, the second speciation occurred with the um, the oak and tufted titmouse split uh, as the woodlands became more impoverished, and so that kind of caused them to, you know, separate as species and evolve in different directions, um, exploiting different areas. Then finally, the most recent split is the tufted titmouse and the black-crested titmouse. So the black-crested titmouse occurs kind of around like East Texas, Oklahoma, um, and it's separated from the uh, tufted titmouse. And that happened because of kind of some desertification, and it kind of cut the the species off from each other. Also, there's a juniper titmouse, too, and that split off from the oak titmouse, also from um, desertification in um, South uh, California, uh, which kind of separated the species. Um, Yeah, and um, as far as uh, then the chickadees came over about uh, 2.5 million years after that, um, their common ancestor, it seems like the mountain chickadee is like the parent group, and there's a lot of... um, kind of argument um, over who's more closely related between the different uh, chickadee species because the black cap and the Carolinas look really, really similar. You know, you'd think that they 
split off from each other pretty recently, but actually like they're not genomically like super as closely related as some other species, which is weird. So they maybe like evolved to look like each other, mm -hmm. um, but aren't necessarily as closely related as like the chestnut back chickadee and the boreal chickadee, pretty closely related. They split about 1.5 million years ago. As far as the immediate ancestor of the chickadees, we think it's at the gray-headed or the Siberian tit. And you'll see it looks really, really similar to um, to the modern chickadees that we have. And it's still hanging out around there in, uh, in Siberia. So we think it colonized North America. Kind of a small population came over. Um, there's still some hanging out in Alaska. And we're, so we wonder if that's a remnant of the originals that came over or if they've crossed back and forth a couple times. We're not really sure. But that's kind of cool how, um, how they came over. Interestingly, I was talking about some of the um, species that they shared, uh, you know, when they were coming into America uh, back in the late uh, Pliocene. They shared the continent. I said that Titanus, um, there were um, these four-foot-tall storks going around, giant ox, giant boobies. Um, had to bring in the boobies. <laughs> um, uh, there was this uh, primitive woodpecker, which kind of looked like a pileated, called Bathycellus hyphalus. Um, there's a giant pelican, Pelicanus uh, shreeberry. I'm probably destroying these pronunciations. And that was actually found in the Yorktown formation. It's hey, fossil. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're from Yorktown here. And uh, you know those little um, spiral shells we always would find in our oh, backyard? Yeah. Yeah. Those are called uh, turritilla. They're like a sea snail. Mm. Um, yep. And then there's Chesapeake and Jeffersonius, which are those clam uh, fossils right. that we would always find too. So yeah, they were coming into an area that was in a lot of transition. Um, and had a lot of different species interacting, killing each other, and and uh, changing. And they survived at the end of the Pliocene. There was a massive extinction um, moving into the uh, Quaternary period. Mm. It's kind of, uh, you know, a lot of these species died off the horses that were in North America. The rhinos, obviously. Like, a lot, a lot of species died. Um, there's a couple reasons why we think that might have happened. I mean... Climate change, so when that the Isthmus of Panama formed and closed, so previously the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean were communicating between there, and then when the land formed, it kind of closed off those currents and caused a lot of cooling to happen. Mm. Also, we think that maybe humans, when they came over 15,000 years ago, killed off a lot of megafauna, possibly. Um, there's thoughts that maybe comets did it, caused like a lot of the climate change. There was also, I read this interesting um, story about a supernova exploded um, about 2 million years ago. It was 130 light years from Earth, and it caused the uh, local bubble. It's not sure that this had too much impact on the Earth, but I mean, when it exploded, it put off um, as much light as like 200 billion stars would cause. And it's thought that it might have damaged the ozone layer, caused some heating of the oceans. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know so, if I buy that one. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I, I buy that I can see light either, reaching us, cool. but any, anything else, 130 million light years yeah. is pretty No, 130, oh, yeah. 130, <laughs> 130 light Still, That's 130 close. light years is still fairly far. Mm. What are y'all's thoughts on that whole... Uh, Tit mice invade, tit invasion. So I had a question. Yeah. Did birds just generally evolve to become smaller? 
is that a, a generalization that you can make? Off of like you mean? Because you were just dinosaurs. saying how there was like a giant pelicans yeah. and that giant <laughs> eight foot bird, and now most of our birds are fairly small. Yeah, comparably. I mean, they all. Uh, we were talking about this yesterday, kind of the evolutionary of birds. Mm-hmm. I mean, they all came from a apex predator, mm-hmm. like dinosaur. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think. Uh, Maybe it's just the smaller ones that we see today because they were more resilient and able to survive mm-hmm. extinction events, right. um, required less food, um, just easier, yeah. better able to handle um, changes in the environment. That's true. But yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right that where there's like these giant ones in the past. However, I mean, we were talking about our woodpeckers, um, the ivory-billed woodpecker, um, who we did uh, an episode about. Um, it's the biggest, or the emperor woodpecker, um, which is the biggest woodpecker and probably extinct, was the biggest one to ever exist. Mm. So, I mean, there's uh, still, yeah, some some of them still are evolving to be bigger. I think it just all depends. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, I know you look at these fossils and it's like these huge things <laughs> yeah. and you're like, fuck, why is everything so small now? <laughs> what giant stuff. I um, can imagine just giant birds like flying around. Yeah. <laughs> Pterodactyls. <laughs> I mean, like, have you ever had a bird, like, it's, uh, like, a vulture or something, it's shadow pass over you, and you kind of get, like, a, a chill or, like, look up, and mm-hmm. they fa- have found evidence that at least early hominids, you know, like, Australopithecus, you know, like, what Lucy was and stuff, mm-hmm. um, they found evidence that they were um, preyed upon by giant birds, at least, uh, yeah, they found, like, a child's, a ho- early hominid child's skull that had in a den of a giant eagle that had talon marks in it. So some little little early primate was running around Africa and then got yeah. just swooped up by Whoa. a fucking That's eagle. wild. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of ingrained in us to like be a little afraid of these. I yeah. mean, we used to we used to be prey for them, which is kind of cool. <laughs> but um I'll talk a little taxonomy real quick. So, as far as chickadees, their uh name is Poacil um Atricopalus. God, I can't pronounce anything. (laughs) Yeah, Latin's a little tough. (laughs) So, Atricopalus, that means black-capped. We kind of talked yesterday Mm -hmm. about pillus Mm -hmm. uh, when we were talking about the pileated woodpecker. Yeah, so it means like a black cat, basically. And then Poaceal comes from the Greek poikilos, which means colorful. And then it's also related to the Greek word pokilidos, which means an unidentified small bird. (laughs) yeah uh, but anyway and then the um titmouse so a tufted titmouse it's balophus do you want to try pronouncing it over there tim the the uh tufted titmouse maybe the you're better than titmouse, me i'm seeing balophus bicolor yep balophus bicolor. bicolor so the the last part the species name bicolor that's pretty easy to understand yeah Two right. i think i get that yeah. one <laughs> and that's kind of because they have that gray and then they have those kind of chestnut colored sides yeah. balophus comes from greek bay b-a-e uh means small so and so bay is that is that done now didn't people used to say i that think some people think probably still people say that say bay yeah and then lophus comes from the greek word for crest so mm. pretty much we're just using a bunch of Greek and right. Latin to say crest <laughs> yeah. in a bunch of different, <laughs> different ways. ways. <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, kind of the names of those two birds there. So I don't know. i got a lot of random stuff about these guys. What do you want to know, you got some stats, like how fast they can fly and stuff like that? I don't know how fast <laughs> they can fly. <laughs> I, do have some, I do have some stats over here. So... Uh, how old do you think the oldest known titmouse was? 
I'm going to say 13 years and two months. Okay, so they have it fairly short lifespans. 13 years and three months. Jesus Christ, No Tim. way. Tim cheated, I feel like. <laughs> I read that before. Okay. <laughs> and th- that, All five months. No, no. <laughs> and that titmouse was actually banded in Virginia. That's, yeah. I yep. 1962 that. to 1974 it lived. Yep. So, yeah, so the oldest known titmouse was around 13 years. Like I said, they nest in cavities. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll nest in nest boxes, fence posts. They've known to nest in metal pipes. They usually have one brood each year. Of course, if you know one brood fails, they might try another one. They lay three to nine eggs at a time. Uh, it takes about two weeks for the eggs to hatch, and then about another two weeks for the um, little nestling birds to mature. Their eggs are white chest, white chestnut, or spotted. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> uh, their nestlings are little naked, pink, helpless things. They have little tufts of fur, or uh, not fur, feathers. <laughs> and their eyes are closed. You'll see uh, chickadees and titmice both. They're known when they get a seed, they'll hold it between their little tiny feet, claws, and hammer it with their beaks to open it up. Mm. Titmice uh, will always choose the largest seed that they can find at a feeder or wherever they're um, harvesting for them. The nest that a, a titmice will make is a little cup-shaped nest, um, usually made out of like some moss, grass, bark strips. They also use snake skin in their nest, Ooh. too. Thanks. Yeah. I've also heard human hair is a popular one when they can get their hands on it. Yeah, they're really? no, yeah, they're known to actually perch on live animal like a cow yeah. or a I horse and pluck <laughs> hair off of the animal, which is pretty ballsy. It is. Yeah, they they found hair from raccoons, possums, dogs, squirrels, horses, cows, oh pretty much everything. Yeah. And it takes them about six to 11 days to construct their nest. Mm. And yeah, they, sometimes they will do a double brood in a year. They're usually monogamous, um, but I mean, nice. most birds kind of sleep around a little bit. You got to diversify <laughs> your gene pool. They do a little courtship dance too. Um, I, I probably have it written down somewhere here. I'll talk about it more. But as far as the black cap chickadees, um, they can excavate their own cavities, unlike the um, tufted titmouse. Um, however, they you know prefer to use a pre-existing one from like a woodpecker or something. They like alder and birch trees for their nests. I have here. Okay. Um, the female usually selects the nest site, and then the male will follow along. Um, they also make a cup-shaped nest. Uh, they really like moss. So I had put up a nest box in a in some forest. Um, and I remember checking on it, and some chickadees had nested in it, and it was almost all like green moss mm. that they had mm. made their nest out of it. It looked pretty comfy if I was yeah. a little chickadee. Yeah, moss would like sound moss. nice. <laughs> and they'll also use fur too. They usually lay one to 13 eggs. I mean, they're smaller, so you know they have more eggs than the titmouse. About two days sitting on their eggs, and another two weeks before the nestlings are able to, to go along. They have white eggs with red spots. And their um, hatchlings are also born naked and, you know, helpless with their eyes closed. That's called um, atrical when a, when a baby's born helpless and it needs its parents totally to survive, mm. just like humans. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's like a little information on them. Titmice, their population is around 8 million and they're increasing. Um, they're spreading also uh, kind of with global warming. Mm. Uh, it used to be in New England, um, if a titmouse was spotted up there, then it was a big deal and birders would literally drive hours to go see it. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> but now they're pretty common up there. Um, other species are spreading too, like the northern mockingbird cardinals are also spreading north. Mm. 
as far as chickadees go, there's about 41 million. They're increasing in the east, but they're decreasing in the west. Um, mm -hmm. So kind of a population change there. What do you want to know, Chris? So you're saying these birds are also found in Europe or related birds? You find them anywhere else in the world? Yeah, so we think that they evolved out of Africa Okay, is what we think. So there's kind of um, uh, some differing theories. There's a, some weird primitive members of the family. Like there's the ground tit, and it's in the Himalayas. Yeah, so these are like the most distant relatives based on mitochondrial DNA sequencing. Uh, the ground tit, the solden tit, and the yellow-breasted tit, they're kind of isolated in the Himalayas, so they're almost like living fossils a little bit, I guess is the buzzword I'd say. Yeah, but the ground tit, it used to, they used to think it was related to a crow because uh, it's also called the ground pecker because it finds its food in yak dung. Oh. And so it'll kind of <laughs> find some yak shit and peck at it and get some <laughs> bugs out of it and Delicious. stuff. Delicious. Yeah. And so we think that's kind of like the more primitive ancestor of these of these birds. So we think they evolved from Africa and were kind of spreading across Asia. A population got kind of stuck in the Himalayas mm -hmm. when the Himalayas Couldn't rose get up. past the mountains. Yeah, and then they spread to America and everything. Um, however, there is an argument that maybe they started around the Himalayas, and that's why you see the most mm. primitive of the birds there. Mm. Um, but... Uh, we're not exactly sure. I, I kind of think they probably started in Africa more because mm -hmm. you see more diversity in the species in Africa. That's where most of the members of the species reside in Africa. So it makes sense that they rose there, spread around Africa, diversified, and then a few members, you know, went off and did their thing, spread and made different um, species and everything. Right. But yeah. We got some hikers. Yeah, good time to crack a beer. All right, it's starting to rain slash sleet a little bit. It's not bad, but hopefully it doesn't get worse since we're recording outside here. And I got my laptop we have and expensive no microphone. Yeah, we have no cover. But anyway, let me go ahead and talk about... Um, so I talked about kind of the behavior of, uh, you know, tits. They're very social, gregarious. Um, so they're called a nuclear species. They um, form like multi-species flocks. Um, and we think that this behavior um, was present, you know, with some of the early ancestors before they came to America, because all the ones in America, the titmouse, the chickadees, have this behavior. Um, we think it evolved to increase their foraging ability because they can talk to each other. They can keep other species around that can look out for predators. Mm -hmm. And you'll see, like, along with chickadees, you'll see pine warblers, kinglets hanging out with them, white-breasted nuthatches. They tend to do this kind of behavior when they're in like a forested area. If they're if the species are out in like an open area, like a plain or something, the multi-species flock won't stay together. It'll break up because it just doesn't make sense or work. Uh, what makes a nuclear species is uh, there's kind of two types of nuclear species. There's passive and active. Passive nuclear species like they don't really care. Like a species, other sp birds might follow them, but like they're not. You know, they don't really care. Um, whereas uh, an active nuclear species, uh, they'll kind of seek out the multi-species flocks, um, and they may follow um, other birds too. They may kind of switch between being a uh, nuclear and a satellite species. The satellites, you know, like the white-breasted nuthatch, those kind of mm. uh, birds. 
you know, it's kind of thought like, so why would you ever be a nuclear species? Because you, you know, other birds are following you. Like, what's your benefit? And the one of the benefits we think evolutionary is kleptoparasitism, where you can watch. Um, if you're a nuclear species, you have all these other uh, satellite species following you, and you can kind of watch what they're doing with their food and maybe steal it if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but also um, the uh, one of the cost is in these multi-species flocks. Um, a lot of the birds are pretty safe except for titmice. Um, titmice are the only ones that are kind of reliably killed by hawks. So there's almost like mm. a fitness cost to having these multi-species flocks. Obviously, the titmice are kind of big and they're out there, uh, very visible to uh, to hawks, I guess. And chickadees, I think, are just so small that they're not worth the hawk's time for the most part. Mm. I mean, they'll probably kill them in a in a pinch. Um, there's been a lot of studies done on on this. I mean, studies consistently show that birds will follow titmice around. And that ties into John with what you were saying just this morning. You were following a group of chickadees and there were a few other tits in there and some uh well no, there weren't any well. tit mice but uh yeah there was a group of chickadees and there were some uh white-breasted nuthatches mm. some creepers following them around mm-hmm. yep we actually see that tit mice really aren't and, and chickadees um at least the studies that they've done they really don't uh steal from each other too much that's thought about why these multi-flocks um foreign because i mean no one would want to hang out with someone if they're going to be stealing your food yeah like uh blue jays a lot of birds really don't like to hang out with blue jays because they consistently will steal food mm-hmm. um <laughs> yeah it's even been shown in studies that titmice won't and chickadees won't store food if there's a blue jay nearby because mm. they know the blue jay is just going to steal it i talked earlier about there were those two blue jays yeah. following that flock they were probably looking yeah. for food to steal Waiting to yeah sneak up uh, however, and, and usually like if it's a gregarious, you know, what makes a multi-species flock evolve is, you know, the bird being willing to have other birds around it, not being aggressive. However, in laboratories, they have shown that tit mice that are reared in aviary, so not in the wild, are more aggressive with um, unfamiliar individuals that are introduced. So there's probably like a lot of passing on of behavior that goes on from family to like every titmouse when they raise their young are kind of teaching them like all right this is how you behave socially you know and if they're raised in an aviary they don't get that kind of teaching of how to behave and so they're like uh impolite you know it's it's kind of cool that i mean we think uh that animals like birds and stuff are just born knowing how to act Mm -hmm. but i mean they have almost like a culture you know Yeah, you got to learn how to be friends with other birds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, they're a lot smarter than we think. And uh, there's also a thing called um, hetero um, speciac uh, attraction. I can't pronounce anything. Um, also, it doesn't help that I write in chicken scratch. Um, but, and this is, uh, birds will deliberately select breeding sites based on whether there's like titmice and chickadees there. Hmm. Um, so like warblers and other birds that like are migrating through, if they see chickadees and titmice, they're like, oh, this is probably a good place. There's probably food. I know I can hang out with these guys and they'll probably keep me safe. Like uh, chickadees and titmice are really important for an environment because uh, other migrating birds will, um, you know, hang out with them and, and see it as a good place to be if they're if they're there and this is um especially at high latitudes where it's a little more inhospitable um they really make a difference like i guess this would be chickadees at the high latitudes and stuff but yeah um i also want to touch on um i read in cornell lab of ornithology it says that you rarely find tit mice over 2,000 feet and i just want to quibble with that a little bit so, I mean, here where we are right now in Canaan Valley, we're at about 3,500 feet, I think. Um, there's no tit mice here. 
but um, where I am, where I live in Elkins, West Virginia, it's around 2,000, 2,500 feet, and there's tit mice freaking everywhere. Yeah. So I don't know. I, I, I think that's not a hard fact, but they definitely, tit mice definitely don't like the mountains as much as chickadees do. You, you find chickadees freaking everywhere, mm. black cat chickadees at least. Oh, um, I also want to say, sorry, with the black cat, or the uh, tufted titmouse, um, you'll notice, Timmy, if you want to flip the page to the titmouse, you'll notice that little black stripe on its uh, above its head there. So that forms uh, when it's a year old. Hmm. So if it's a, because what happens is, you know, they'll have their babies in the summer and their babies won't uh, molt before winter. They'll just keep their feathers, you know? And then in the springtime, they'll molt. They'll do their first molt of feathers and then they'll grow those black crests. So if it's the winter time and you're ever trying to tell whether it's a, like, you know, older chickadee or or older titmouse, sorry, or a new one. You can look for that um, a black stripe above the eyes oh, there. Okay. And if it's a a new one, um, it won't have it. So yeah, that's kind of a cool little trick you can use. Yeah. Another little snippet I saw about uh, interesting behavior with the uh, crests is that they will be sort sort of raised all the way or lowered based on uh, based on the bird's mood at times. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. So if they're scared, they'll lower the crest mm-hmm. to kind of seem a little more inconspicuous obviously if they're fighting or something they'll raise it yeah and they um have pretty uh they have hierarchies within their flocks too Mm -hmm. usually it's the male older bird that um has more of the uh dominance and there's always like uh subordinate um birds too in the hierarchy um they're kind of more on the outskirt of the flock Mm -hmm. whereas the alpha will be you know in the middle however it's important to have these subordinate birds because they're more likely to try new things versus the you know if you're the dominant bird you're only going to stick to what you know where there's if you're subordinate you kind of have to try out new stuff and that's really important because if the environment's changing these subordinate birds are going to be the ones more likely to seek out new things and find uh, new sources of food mm-hmm. or environment. So in the summer, they have a smaller habitat uh, or a smaller range because, you know, they're able to survive. Uh, there's more food around. So uh, usually they're around uh, 10 acres will support kind of a, a flock of um uh, and a flock is usually six to ten uh, chickadees or um, titmouse. It's a little smaller than that. Yeah, titmice are three to six birds for fifteen to twenty acres versus chickadees with six to ten. And then in winter, it ex- it doubles its size to around twenty acres. Hmm. I don't know. What do you want to talk about more? Winter versus summer with these guys. What What do you think? What are you interested in? You had mentioned what kills them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the titmice are the ones that seem to get preyed upon a lot more. By hawks, you said? Yeah, so they're the only ones reliably killed by hawks. The biggest killer of chickadees and titmice is the winter. Oh. Is, is freezing to death or running out of food. One of the big ways they can combat freezing to death, though, is uh, at night they'll roost inside cavities to kind of stay a little sheltered. And then also they go into a state of um, turpor, which is kind of like hibernation. And they can lower their body temperature down to in the 80s. During the day, wow. they're at 108 degrees usually. Wow. And they actually raise their metabolic rate to 20 times what it is in the summer so that they're like burning fuel and staying warm. Um, but that means they have to eat a lot mm-hmm. of food, yeah. too. I'm an especially high-protein food, too, so they're going after a lot of seeds and everything like that. 
Uh, just to put in context, human hypothermia starts around 95 degrees. If we dropped our body temperature into the 80s, we would be in like stage three hypothermia and like close yeah. to 10. <laughs> so that's a really cool um, adaptation that they can do yeah. to uh, to survive uh, cold nights. And so, uh, chickadees, at least, sometimes they'll group together too, almost huddle and mm. cuddle during the night in their roost. So, so lowering the body temperatures, that's something they just will do per like every night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so that they're not wasting yeah. their energy wow. mm. trying to stay warm during the night. Another time when they're most, you know, prone to predation is when they're nestlings. They get eaten by snakes, raccoons, skunks, possums, squirrels. Of course, cats also kill a lot of adults and nestlings, unfortunately. Hawks, owls, sharp-shinned sharp um, and cooper's hawks um, uh, will prey on them too. Um, but really, like I said, their main predator is winter hunger cold. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I also found, so um, chickadees tend to be higher in trees than uh, titmice. Hmm. Titmice tend to take like the middle stratum, whereas a lot of times you'll see chickadees way up in the branches. So, um, I mean, there's nest mites, which infest every bird either in their nests or there's also uh, mites that will um, be on their bodies each species of bird has a different species of mite that likes it um, but there's also some uh, blood parasites that mm. will infect birds tit mice are kind of low middle stratum birds and they get infected with a parasite called um parahema proteus its vector is um biting midges which you might also know as noceums you know those little mm. Yeah. yeah. So uh -huh. those will bite birds too and infect them with this bloodborne parasite. Um, chickadees in the upper layer, they actually get infected with uh, plasmodium, which you might also know as malaria. <laughs> so oh. that comes from mosquitoes. Yes. Yeah. It's actually, it's a low parasite burden. It's more common in young birds or mm. a sick bird. So it's not like a major problem, but it's definitely there. It'll usually kill them. Um, I think it can kill them if they're young or they're yeah. sick or something like that. But it's it's really a low overall like parasite burden. Um, it picks up in the spring and summer when it's mm -hmm. warmer. Mm -hmm. uh, the winter kind of helps uh, calm all that stuff down. So that's kind of like what what kills them. What else do you want to know? Did we mention just the distinctive calls of both birds and yeah. how they recognize those? Oh, I'd like to hear. Yeah. So chickadee uh, saying its own name. Really? Yeah, chickadee, chickadee, dee dee. Yeah, we, we can hear it over there doing it. But yeah, we'll start with the tough to tit mouse. So um, I'm using a great website called Zeno Canto where uh, birders kind of put up their recordings. Mm. Shout out to Jacob Saucier. Saucier. Uh, <laughs> for, uh, yeah, thanks, Saucier. <laughs> for um, letting me use his recordings and also Brian Hendricks, possibly related to Jimmy. But here's a, here's a tough to tit mouse. And it's kind of these are kind of like scolding alarm calls. Mm -hmm. um, I think we also have it doing its signature Peter Peter Peter. Yeah. Let's see. Peep peep. Kind of yeah. That's pretty going. I'll see if I can get a Peter Peter Peter. These are all tit. Yeah, these are all tit mouse. Mm -hmm. um, I, they have a lot of different calls. I mean, they're very vocal birds. Wow, that's kind of a cool one. Yeah. But yeah, their signature song is like, Peter, 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 right. that they'll do. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so you'll hear that a lot. I'm looking at the, on Xeno Canada, they post the elevation that they uh, record at, and all of these are like under 
500 feet. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that 2,000, under 2,000 feet rule does kind of hold up. I don't know, maybe it I should. did say it was rare, so that could be a That's little true. subjective. Yeah. And maybe considering also, yeah, rare. yeah. And to be fair, I don't see them in the mountains. I see them just in the valley right, there, right. and the valley is around 2,000, 2,500 feet. Yeah. So maybe they have nowhere else to go right. than yeah, that be. elevated valley. Yeah, that's a. Uh, I think this is saucy. Yeah. Anyway, um, and then we have our black cat chickadee sounds. That's one one of my favorites. Cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's uh, some of the sounds that they make there. They kind of have two different kinds of sounds that they do. So while they're moving around in the forest, they'll constantly kind of be talking. Those are called contact calls mm. where they're kind of checking in on each other. You okay? You okay? You okay? You okay? They'll also voice if there's like food, they'll make a certain sound. And then, uh, of course, if there's a person walking by, a cat, any kind of danger, they'll have different. And um, uh-huh. if you if you get really familiar with them, they have different calls for hawks. They have different calls for, you know, a fox, really? a cat, a person. Yeah. Yeah, and um, the general rule is, so they'll do that chick-a-dee-dee-dee, you know, and the more Ds they put on, usually the more aggravated they are. So uh-huh. they're just like, dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee. Yeah. <laughs> they're like, they're like pissed Ds. off. Yeah. And then they have, like, more of their songs that they sing, too, to each other, um, you know, especially when they're trying to mate and everything mm-hmm. like that. So uh, these are, like, really well-loved birds, one, because they're so easy kind of to hear and see in the Mm -hmm. woods and they help you find other birds they're also like kind of known for being pretty cool with like humans i mean you'll see a lot of accounts of people hand feeding them and stuff Mm -hmm. um i read this one account from this guy named john woodcock and he said that in it was 1913 um he was like out hunting and um found some chickadees that were so tame that they would go on his hat they would land on his lips and peck at his teeth um, and he also talks about when he's trying, he was trying to hunt rabbits and the chickadee was perched on his gun barrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're, uh, pretty inquisitive, curious, mm-hmm. uh, smart birds. I got a little bit about their courtship here. Apparently chickadees, when they court each other, they'll quiver their wings, lean forward, do a T-ship, T-ship call. And that's done by the female. Um, and it's kind of, uh, imitating the way that their, um, fledglings beg for food. Um, the female will kind of act like a child bird, I guess. I don't know. Beg for the... Beg for... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then it'll kind of tease the male, too. It'll do like a fake scolding call. It'll fly away, then come back, fly away, come back. Versus, this is kind of cool, the titmouse, when they're um, courting each other, um, the male will place food in the female's bill. Um, and then it'll quiver its wing. The female will quiver its wings and then make a CCC call. It said it sounds like a teapot. You know, uh, we talked about kind of the European species. The blue tit is a really popular one in Europe that's related to these guys. Blue tits used to be called pick cheese because they were known for when people would have uh, dare, dare, what are people called? They make cheese. I don't oh. know. <laughs> the people that make cheese. Cheese makers. I don't know. It, <laughs> it would, yeah, it was known for entering dairies and eating cheese. Oh. Um, there's also a varied tit, um, which is in Japan, and it was known for being used to predict fortunes because they were, it, I mean, they're just smart birds. They were able to teach them um, how to uh, peck at different cards to choose different, like, fortunes and stuff like that. Wow. I guess I talked about the evolution of, you know, titmouse and how it split into the different species. I touched upon how chickadees came from that 
that Siberian tit ancestor and then split tits, different species. Um, one of the big things is, you know, the black cap chickadee and the Carolina chickadees. So they look very, very similar. They have a little bit of difference um, in their song and size. The black cap tends to have a longer tail. Carolina has a little bit different song. It says Phoebe instead of the black cap. It supposedly says Phoebe. It's really mostly people just use range to, to figure it out because they do overlap a little bit kind of around right here in West Virginia. They kind of overlap. But uh, you can look at range maps to kind of figure out whether what you're seeing is a black cap or a um, Carolina chickadee. I read this interesting article. I think it, you know, Tanner, that guy I talked about yesterday that studied the ivory bills, I think he may have been involved in this. But so kind of uh, this focused on the uh, Blue Ridge Mountains right where they hit North Carolina. And they were studying how black cap chickadees are kind of up in the mountains there and then Carolinas would be down in the valleys. And if it's a mountain where there's not black cap chickadees, then the Carolinas will be up in those mountains. So yeah. they kind of the black caps uh, seem to like prefer the higher elevation and exploit it a little better and keep the Carolinas away. Mm. They do interbreed, so there's there's all these hybrid species. Yeah. Black caps will also interbreed with uh, with boreal and mountain chickadee too. There's some behavioral differences that they noticed. Um, the black caps seem to be more curious and bold than the um, Carolina chickadee. And then I talked about the song, the Black Cap song is more Phoebe and the Carolina Phoebe, kind of a higher pitch songs. But apparently they're also learning each other's songs and they'll kind of copy uh, each other. So eventually yeah. they'll probably sound exactly the same. <laughs> yep, pretty much. The Carolinas will also be found in swamps too, whereas Black Caps you, you don't really find in kind of swamp. But um, it's kind of cool. So the way that they think that the black caps ended up in these mountains versus the Carolinas down in the valleys is during um, Pleistocene, um, where it was like kind of a polar ice sheet um, extending down that kind of fragmented the populations of the black cap chickadees. And then when it uh, retreated, they were kind of there on the mountaintops and like uh, they kind of just stayed there. They didn't really try to spread um, because they kind of liked that um, higher elevation there. That's Carolina and black cap. I mean, there's a lot I can go into differentiating them. There's like some subspecies. Uh, we talked about the subspecies of the Pileated's yesterday, mm -hmm. but there's subspecies of chickadees. It's kind of, there's no way to really tell them in the field. You have to like do genomic analysis mm -hmm. or be like Audubon and kill them and, and shoot them yeah. and look at them up close. Oh, oh, hold on. One more thing I want to talk about is, um, I don't know if I, I think I mentioned how blue jays will try to steal food from them. So uh, both titmice and chickadees will store seeds. They'll store them in tree bark or um, titmice, I think, specifically will store a lot of, of acorns in the leaf litter, which is great for trees because they'll forget about some of them and then they'll germinate uh. and form. Yeah. And actually in the wintertime, they found that um, their brains change. Their hippocampus will expand. The hippocampus, you know, is the part of the brain that does memory. Um, and they'll form more neurons, too, uh, getting ready for the winter uh, huh. to form all these connections. Because they're going to be hiding more. and Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's really cool. The chickadee is the state bird of Massachusetts. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, I had the picture of Audubon open. We could look at Audubon's pictures of his drawings. So here's, he calls it the crested titmouse rather than tufted. Do you want to describe that picture of Audubon I have in front of you there? I mean, everyone knows who Audubon is. But. I don't. I've never heard of this oh, guy. He was a famous uh, painter or early ornithologist in North America. He was born in, um, 
Haiti actually, and then really, yeah, came over to the United States. Yeah. yeah, he's just hanging out on a rock with his dog and a rifle. Got yeah. some long hair. Looks like he's got some yeah, big like uh, mutton chops. <laughs> That's pretty, pretty badass. <laughs> some dude in the background just like skulking with his horse. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't Probably, know what, yeah, what I forget his doing. name. That's like his servant. Oh, his, his servant, uh, yeah, yeah tending to his horse. <laughs> his manservant. <laughs> but yeah, we can. We're looking at the picture right now. He does a good job with. So the, he pa- he painted yeah this wow yeah he shows them on a white pine one of them's kind of peering up and the other one's doing its characteristic hammering of the seed between its Ah, legs yeah Yeah. and uh, they're showing showing the nice crest i really do like this picture that he does of it i do not really like the um one he does of the black cap chickadee you can see here it's like really awkward like look at that bottom one it's like super awkward that's a weird pose yeah yeah so i don't know what and i forget what uh let's see i was trying to figure out what kind of berry they're like some berries Uh. on that tree it shows them there but yeah i don't know what type of tree shows them on but yeah i do like the one he does with the titmouse Tim, any quotes from there, that book you want to read? I thought this one earlier kind of tied in well with, again, just the sort of the flock uh, behavior that they exhibit and the grouping of birds as you uh, as you observe them. That Chickadee page here says, uh, This optimist greets winter with all the zest of a boy with a new sled. Other small birds follow trustfully as it flits about, consuming countless insects and calling its own name in a voice which... Burroughs described as full of unspeakable tenderness and fidelity. Oh. Can you read that thing about the sl- the boy with the... I like that quote. Yeah, yeah, I thought that was a good one as well. This is, uh, this is referring to the chickadees, and it says, This optimist greets winter with all the zest of a boy with a new sled. That's all, that makes me think of, like, Calvin oh, Hobbes. Yeah. That's perfect, <laughs> yeah, that, how they act. The yep. zest. Who, who wrote that? Is that uh, Pearson, or...? I thought that this section was Pearson. The illustrations here from Brooks, Alan yeah, Brooks. Yeah, it'll double check on the, the actual writer here. Winged denizens of woodland, stream, and marsh. Uh, this is Alexander Wetmore. Alexander, wow, okay, mm-hmm. good writer. And I guess if it, I didn't say it, but I mean, these birds don't migrate, so they're around during the winter time. I was going to ask that, yeah. but I assume since they were. We in the winter, yeah. 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 <laughs> you were talking about them being up in the mountains yeah. that they didn't they didn't need to do that. Alright, well let's let's talk about some legends, missing legends here. I'll start off with the Cherokee here. So the Cherokee called chickadees Tsikili, which kind of is onomatopoeic of their uh call. They kind of Tsikili, Tsikili, I guess the chickadees kind of sound like that. Mm. Um the tufted titmice were called um Utsugi, which means top knot. It kind of, if you look at the crest of the tufted titmouse, it almost looks like, you know, how you would wear your hair in a top knot like mm. that. In a, in the folklore of the uh, Cherokee, chickadees are kind of like the honest messenger, while titmice are the false messenger. They're also called like the bird that lies. And this comes from this story here. So this is a story about <laughs> um, an ogress Ooh. named Fiona. Just kidding. No. <laughs> <laughs> um... So, there is an ogress named Utlunta, Utlunta, which means spear fingers. And this is because her fingers were literally spears. Oh my god. <laughs> um, she had hard skin and this large, long forefinger that was a bony spear. And with it, she would extract the liver from her victims. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Oh, there's a chickadee. Yeah, you hear ah. it. Yeah. 
Cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about you. Um, that was to the chickadee. This legend takes place in North Carolina, um, specifically around Whiteside Mountain in North Carolina. It's said that this ogress, um, Otlanta Spearfingers, um, created the cliffs there on Whiteside Mountain. Um, I forget exactly how, but anyway. So she was going around, stabbing people, taking their livers out. And, of course, the native Indians were uh, pretty pissed off at this. So they make a uh, giant pitfall, like a, a hole, you know, to trap her in. Um, and she falls into it and gets trapped. Um, and they start shooting her with arrows. But it's the arrows, she has that hard skin, so the arrows do nothing. Well, a titmouse shows up and says to the um, Indian warriors that she's vulnerable over her heart. And they believe him, so they start trying to shoot her at her heart. Well, she's uh, the arrows just bounce off, so they know the titmouse is lying. So they catch him, and they cut out his tongue. And to this day, the titmouse has a short tongue. I don't. I couldn't find any <laughs> biology supporting that, but I buy okay. that. <laughs> anyway, but then a female chickadee shows up, and it's kind of shy and acting all modest and stuff. Um, but then it tells them that actually the heart of um, Beer Fingers is in its hand. So then the uh, one of the Indian warriors um, shoots an arrow at uh, the hand of the ogress and finally kills it. And so then from then on, the chickadee is known as the honest messenger. So you yep. can't trust a tit. You can't trust a tit. <laughs> <laughs> um Another legend is um, of a, a uh, Indian warrior. I, I'm not sure. I think he might be Cherokee also, named Bloody Hand. Oh, I forgot to talk about this, but um, chickadees and titmice both are known to eat um, meat from uh, dead animals. Oh, uh, mm. They'll yeah, if there's like a dead deer or something. Oh, that. They'll uh, they'll peck the meat from it and eat it. Um, so this uh, Indian warrior named Bloody Hand was known for giving um, bits of. Uh, what is that? Some dude yelling, I guess. Maybe it's Bloody Hand. <gasps> the ghost of Bloody Hand. Sounds like an anguished like cow or something. Yeah. Oh, is it the oh they're just yelling. Yeah, they're yelling for like the echo. <laughs> anyway, so Bloody Hand was known for giving bits of uh, venison and stuff to the birds, so the birds like him. Uh, one day he's on the warpath when he's ambushed and killed and scalped. The birds see it, and they're talking to each other, and, uh, you know, they're really sad that poor old bloody hands. I mean, I guess he's living up to his name. Um, what they do is they go and they steal his scalp back from the um, Indians who scalped him. The hawk uses his sharp bill to untie the scalp from where it's tied up and um, bring it back to the body of bloody hands. And the birds um, all together make a, a medicine um, using bits of each of their own flesh. Um, they use a corn stalk. To, there's a very complicated story, but they like plant some corn, they grow a corn plant. Uh, it is now kind of rain sleeting. And they put some blood inside of it. Then they grow a squash vine and they use the seeds. Anyway, and then they sing a song around it too. Um, and a tree grows. There's a whole thing going on. They need to go inside, they need to bring the medicine inside the body of Bloody Hand, and none of the birds can do it, they're too big, except for Chickadee, because it's a little small bird. So Chickadee um, drinks the medicine, flies inside the Bloody Hand's mouth, goes to his stomach, throws the medicine up inside his stomach, and then flies back out. And um, 
uh, and then after two days and two nights, Bloody Hand wakes up. And this is like known as teaching the me the bird medicine. Look up Solomon O'Bale if you're interested in this. He describes how you make the bird medicine. It's a whole like ritual and everything like that. So those are, are two stories I have there about uh, chickadees and titmice. As far as folklore goes, chickadees, um, when they're perched near a house and singing, means like an absent friend is about to return. So a chickadee hanging upside down is supposed to mean that good news is on its way. Anyway, my notes are getting soaked by this uh, rain. It's probably bad for my laptop and mic. We'll wrap it up here. Any closing thoughts, you guys? I think it was a great episode talking about this family of birds, and I certainly learned a lot about them, and uh, lots of great information as always, John. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed that thoroughly. I know a lot more about tits than I used to. <laughs> thanks for being here, guys. You've been listening to the Dirty Bird Podcast. Produced and researched by me, John Janusik, with music from the Sidewalk Slammers. Listen to their song, New York Redneck, wherever you get your music. Original artwork by my lovely fiance, Lauren McClure. Be sure to subscribe and leave us a review or comment. We love to hear from you. Follow us on Instagram, at Dirty Bird Podcast, and send us listener mail at dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com. Until the next time, stay dirty, my birdies. <laughs>